0: Our guest today has studied the historical case for the The resurrection, resurrection, arguably more than anybody else alive. In 1976, he published his doctoral dissertation at Michigan State University with the title, The Resurrection of Jesus, a Rational Inquiry. After nearly five decades of studying the resurrection, he is just releasing the first of four volumes titled On the Resurrection, the evidence is in this in-depth video we're going to look at how the debate about jesus has shifted over the decades what persuaded dr gary habermas to spend his life studying the resurrection what it considers the strongest evidence for the resurrection and what to expect in this volume and the next three gary i've been looking forward to this for years since i heard you are working on this thanks for joining <laughs> me let's jump in
1: yeah thanks Sean I've been looking forward to it for years too
0: <laughs> well you should be excited you've poured thousands of hours into this and we're going to get into what you cover in the volume but before we get to the historical case you, that you lay out in this newest book which will involve looking at your 12 minimal facts one by one what first motivated you to rationally examine the evidence for the resurrection and did you expect it to become a life's work
1: No, although, I mean, no, I would not have expected it, but there's something that might have hinted it, Mm. and it was this. Uh, In my teen years, I started going through some serious doubts about Christianity, Mm. and it lasted for a long time. It lasted for 20 years, straight for 10, and off and on for 10 more, Mm. for a total of 20, And, and it went on past my Ph.D., so it went on for a long time, and friends started coming up to me, Christian friends, and saying, So what do you need? And I said, evidence. I thought at that time I needed evidence. I wish somebody had told me that there's different kinds of doubt. But evidence. All right. Well, have you studied creation? No. All right, you better start studying that. What what we call today intelligent design. Oh, well, you better you better study that. Okay. Well, that's okay. Not bad, but doesn't tell me Christianity's true. Okay. Archaeology. Well, that's nice, but doesn't prove Christianity's true. The New Testament's reliable or almost reliable. I was reading critical material, so I didn't know who to believe. Anyway, they sent me to a bunch of things and I thought some of them are lousy arguments, some of them are good arguments, but none of them show Christianity's true. It just shows there's some exciting things about Christianity I didn't know. That one day in my reading and i was reading incessantly i read in a book if god raised jesus from the dead Mm. jesus's teachings must be true because why else would god do it and i thought it's like one sentence and i thought wow that makes sense and so when archaeology id um argument f bruce and old arguments for reliability etc etc it's that prophecy which i rejected pretty quickly um when they didn't work enter enter into my life the topic of the resurrection now i couldn't have guessed no i couldn't have guessed it would take me forever but if you'd asked me i'd say well what else am i going to study it's the best topic out there hmm. so resurrection answered my factual questions after an incredibly long search and knowing more about myself because I found out about emotional doubt and volitional doubt, which I wrote about later. But it's, but it's been a lifelong search just for me to master this topic. So that's a short
0: preview. If it weren't for the doubt that you it, it described experiencing for 20 years, do you think you would have studied and researched the resurrection as much as you have?
1: No, that is an hmm. interesting question. N- no, my pastor, a German, German Baptist pastor, came over to my house. He, he read fluently in German, and his well, his first name was Adolf, and he <laughs> sat in my living room. He was kind of a we today we would call him a fideist of sorts, hmm. and he begged me because my mom said I'm really worried about him with his doubts, and he begged me to put away my books. And just trust in the Lord. And my mom said the same thing. Just trust in the Lord. My mom said, if you can practice faith for maybe two weeks, every time a question comes up, say, no, I believe, no, I believe. After two weeks, you'll have a habit. Well, actually, that's pretty sophisticated. You you can do that kind of method in psychology for issues. But I said, Mom, I'm not going to get over my doubts by saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. That doesn't make it true. Oh, well. And she didn't know what else to say. So I developed my bad habits. I played a lot of sports, especially hockey and football. And I would play all afternoon. And I would come in at night, turn the light on, didn't care about any homework I had. I was too worried about my doubts. And I started studying. And it's where I learned my bad habits of not turning the light out at 11 or 12. And I'd stay up till 1, one thirty, and have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning for college. And I kept studying. And, and Sean, there were 100 times when I thought to myself, I'm one hour away. I'm almost there. Wow, this is exciting. And I never was. And the next day, 100 questions would in, and I was back to
0: it again. Wow. Now, we could have a whole conversation just about doubt, and you've written some really helpful books on this, but it's amazing because I've gone through seasons of doubt, and oftentimes I've wished I didn't have it, but that's what motivated me to help my dad update evidence that demands a verdict. That's in part what motivated me to study the apostles, and I can see a similar thing in your life. Um,
1: Nobody's ever suggested this, but I probably would have had no reason to go to the resurrection because hmm. in the early years— i didn't care if anybody knew what i was reading or not it was totally for my doubts totally for me i didn't care i didn't go out and tell my friends what i found out i just kept studying to answer my own questions and if i didn't have those questions wow up in the air on whether i would have got to it
0: so this goes way back were you keeping note cards this is probably before personal computers like how were you doing were you arranging this stuff or is it just in your mind I keep a
1: lot of things in my mind. The Lord's blessed me with uh, good memory. But but yes, note cards, I, some of your audience is going to go, what's that? <laughs> but I had about 2,000 note cards, and I had them numbered in the upper right-hand corner so I could keep track of them. I mean, wow. otherwise, how do you find one note card out of 2,000? So I numbered them, and I always kept track of the number so I could find it, and I had them in those old trays that you put um, three by five cards in Mm -hmm. and I owned four or five of those in order to hold 2000 of them. And they must've been kind of sophisticated because later, not only did I use that research in college courses, but I used a lot of those notes for my PhD dissertation years later. In the, and the, uh, sources were still relevant. They were a little bit old, so I had to get some newer ones to augment them. But the things I wrote down, my professors had no problem with. Hmm. So, And the funny thing was, when I was uh, 14, I decided to stop and say, what have I learned so far? And I wrote an essay just for me. Obviously, it wasn't going to be good at high school. I wrote just for me to remember what I'd learned so far. And the essay was 25 pages long at age 14. And later it grew to 49 pages. When later in upper level college, I needed to get an essay real fast. I wasn't good about doing my homework. I had too much research to do on my doubts. (laughs) I just dropped that essay on the teacher's desk and he gave me an A. What I wrote years ago, I got an A on. But that was written just for me.
0: Amazing. I, I, I love that so we're going to get to your book here and by the way i think it's probably showing up today i don't have a physical copy in hand i understand it's 1100 pages five pounds i printed it out in two massive documents front and back i hope is okay i've read all of it do you have a copy hold it up and show us because this is holy cow
1: this is like the first commercials on the whopper it takes two hands to handle a whopper it takes two hands to handle this whopper
0: turn it sideways so we can see uh, a little boy, bit towards the middle. Uh, amazing! That's how huge it is. This is a lifetime of study on the resurrection, which is which is incredible. I hope folks will pick it up. Now we're going to get into some of the details of it, Gary. But maybe give us a sense of how scholarship as a whole, kind of thirty thousand foot view on Jesus and the resurrection, has changed yep. since the seventies.
1: Let me go back a little before the 70s because a scary thing was going on. For for evangelical doubters, a scary thing was going on in the 60s, and it continued into the 70s. But I don't want to get too heavy here, but when German liberalism, that's the time period when all the uh, naturalistic theories of the resurrection came up, from 1799 to about 1920. During the period from 1920 to about 1950 or 60, There was an age when many scholars rebelled against the historical Jesus movement of the German movement, and they didn't want evidences. History was out. You could study history, but not as an evidence to back up the Christian faith. Mm. And the two biggest names were Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann. They were worlds apart. Barth, probably for sure a believer. Bultmann to the left of Bart Ehrman today. But here's the thing. Late in that century, Bart Ehrman ran the theolo- was the most popular name in theology. German to both German scholars, Boltmann was a New Testament scholar, and he was a bit of a fideist, a lot of a fideist, and he never gave evidence for anything he said because he didn't believe in historical backup. He would he would give reasons for things, but not what we would call evidence. And when I went to school, everything was in Boltmann's shadow, and he would say. Empty tomb? Are you kidding me? That's mythology. Um, appearances? Well, I know it's I know it's in the New Testament, but what difference does that make? The New Testament came from ancient Hellenistic mythology, and that's the stuff that was going on in the '60s. Hellenistic mythology was big, and Boltman was very influential. He died in 1976, hmm. and. Things started changing a little bit, and the first group of scholars after that didn't want to get too... Here's how you get really conservative in those days. Say Jesus rose from the dead. Now you're an outsider. Say he was raised from the dead bodily, and you're a fighting fundamentalist, because nobody said Hmm. that. A few people dared to say Jesus rose from the dead, but he rose from the dead as sort of a glorified spirit. But don't get me wrong. He was really there, sort of like what some Christians believe Paul saw on the way to Damascus. Um an ethereal, shining Jesus, strangely enough, no light is associated with Jesus' appearance in the Gospels. Light's huh. never there. Huh. But and as time went on now, the, the third quest for the historical Jesus came in about this time. And now conservatism, because of a lot of findings, conservatism is back in and the resurrection is a hot subject from hmm. um, about 1980 on. I don't mean everybody believes in it, sure. but you're not stupid at talking about it because everybody's talking about it. Hmm. So I fit right into that group. But unfortunately, Sean, when that was going on and everybody was open to resurrection, my doubts at that time, post-PhD, I say this because I wasn't 14 or 16 or 20, post-PhD, I almost Maybe that's too strong but i don't think so almost converted to buddhism wow my doubts were still going on
0: wow so i was still
1: torn yeah. up about all these questions and things
0: yep so if you had to guess and maybe this is not even a fair question uh, i emailed you and i said how much time do you think you've put into this project volume one and i think you said about thirty-two thousand hours into this i
1: actually Did- i actually had a pretty good figure on that oh because tell, I tell us I've worked 70 hours a week. Now, not all on this, so I had to cut a percentage off, maybe 50%. I've worked 70 hours a week for about, four, this is my 14th year on this project. And wow. I've been working 70 hours a week, as my wife or my research assistant can tell you. So I simply divided 70 times the number of weeks and took about 50% of it off because I do other things like email and everything else. But I worked 70 hours a week of work. So that, that figure is
0: probably fairly accurate. And that's on top of decades before that. You've studied it on and off yeah. in different ways. So who knows how much time you've put, but minimally 32,000 yeah. hours. Yeah, don't forget the re-
1: the dissertation mm. was in the earlier period. Mm. So.
0: Okay, so maybe give us just a quick sense of what's in each of these four volumes, and then we'll start getting honed down into this first volume that's actually out soon. Okay. Okay, you want me to give the themes of the four volumes? Yeah, just the kind of broad, general themes of what you cover in each one.
1: Well, if I hold this up again, you can see the theme of number one, if I can get it over here, uh, it's evidences, Does that do it? Yep. There you go. Evidences. On the resurrection, volume one is evidences. And it's my research assistant and Mike Lacona. My research assistant has a PhD and did his MA and PhDs, the uh, thesis and dissertation resurrection. So he and Mike Lacona, they said, When are you going to bring out your evidences? I said, oh, probably volume three. They go, oh, no. And my assistant and Mike agreed. It's got to be volume one. Start with it. And I begrudgingly said, all right. And now I'm glad I did. So number one is the evidences. Number two are alternative theories. And I say alternative because not everything is a naturalistic theory. Like I said just a few moments ago, some believers – Accepted a view in the '60s and '70s that Jesus was truly, truly raised, but he was ra- he appeared about like what a lot of people think Paul saw on the way to Damascus—kind of ethereal, non-bodily, but really there, really there, not yeah. a hallucination. Uh, that's not a naturalistic theory, but I had to have a chapter on that. Gotcha. Uh, so, volume two is on natural evidences, uh, natural objections, uh, and all their objections. Volume three is i'm moving away from apologetics now with volume three okay volume three started out as 1500 pages and we've honed it down to about 800 and it is a who's who of liberal all the way to very liberal atheist new testament scholars all the way to very conservative new testament writers with credentials very conservative but you know phd and uh What we did was try to survey about 140. My research assistant said it's more like 200. He said, he's the one that typed it up. Uh, About 140 questions minimum from Good Friday to the Ascension. So you got about 40 days here. Mm. And think of all the questions you could ask. Why the third day? Um, How did Jesus appear? What's our earliest evidence? Every question you could think of. And all we do in volume three is not argue for anything. We give a landscape view from really liberal to really conservative, so everybody can see. I hmm. hope the guys who read it said that volume three will be a basis for people doing MA theses and PhD dissertations because it it links the field. Okay, I've written two little books on the resurrection of theology and resurrection of practice, but nobody knows about it. They didn't saw a lot, so I've been I'm criticized sometimes. All this guy does is talk about evidence, evidence, evidence. Does he do anything else on the resurrection? Well, volume three is the overview, and volume four says, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, what does this say about the Christian worldview, awesome. Christology and theology in general, and pastoral theology? And if you want wow. to get really practical, what does the resurrection say to those who've lost loved ones? And since wow. my my the mother of my four children died of stomach cancer in, in uh, 1995, um, I, and I wrote a book on it on grief. I feel like I've got some things to apply the resurrection to grief. Mm. So, the last volume, four, volume volume four is very practical.
0: Hmm. I got to tell you, of the four, I'm probably most excited about volumes two and four because you cover uh, some of the practical side in your book, Risen Indeed. You know, the kingdom of God and dealing with doubt. And I thought I'd love to see more on this. So, expanding that is going to be such a contribution. Uh, we'll have you back, and we'll talk about that. Now, in this one, we're going to focus on the evidences. Is there anything you've changed your mind on since you wrote your dissertation in 1976? Arguments you thought, you know what? I thought this was strong. I'm backtracking. Arguments thought you were bad that you now buy. Or is your basic argument roughly the same where it was? Um, right, let
1: me start by saying, yeah, there are some things, and I can, I can outline those, but uh, the The idea of the minimal facts argument, and you mentioned twelve of them earlier, actually I use six facts and a second fact, six, which aren't minimal facts, but they're very close for a total of twelve. Mm. That started while I was doing my dissertation. And let me tell you how the minimal facts thing started. Yeah, it started because my professors at Michigan State, I had a couple professors who believed in the resurrection. But I had a couple of very, very, you know, left-wing professors, and they would tolerate whatever I was doing if I could defend something but they didn't believe what I was saying. So I had to be very careful what I said. When when my dissertation committee accepted my su- a subject on the resurrection, as we were leaving, one of the more liberal members of the committee said to me, as we walked out the door, he said, "We're liberal at Michigan State." but we're good liberal and i'm thinking what does good liberal mean he said good liberal is we will give you a phd if you define if you defend well what you do we do not have to agree with you you yeah. defend it well you got your phd and i always remembered that hmm. so i sat down and i was trying to make my arguments like i said that was boltman's heyday he died that same year i graduated and I'd answer, let's just pick one out. The legend theory. Is it this all come from Greek myth? I sat there. I remember the chair I was in. I remember the, where the light was positioned. And I sat there and I said, if I am writing this for guys who do not believe the Bible is even re, the New Testament is even reliable, how can I make, get my point across? And I made a list of facts that could be backed up without citing F.F. F. Bruce's little book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, which is the go-to reliability book of yep. those days. And if I don't cite reliability, because they're not going to give it to me no matter what. They don't think the New Testament's reliable. They still don't. But what facts can I do according to their ways of arguing? So I learned the liberal way of arguing. I can think much easier as a liberal than I can as a conservative, because that's what I did for my whole life, my doubts and my schooling. And I came up with this list that even Boltman would accept, and if wow. Boltman accepts them, everybody accepts them, you know. Mm. So that was the beginning of the minimal facts argument, and um, and it just evolved from there. I, I, I my whole dissertation is if we only know this these data. Now, how have I changed? Um, when I was writing in the seventies, I could not mention. Bodily appearances, not because I didn't believe them, but because everybody thought they were stupid. You could, you could, except for the real conservative New Testament guys. You could teach Jesus really raised from the dead. That's fine, but say he was resurrected like Paul on Damascus. He was a glorified person who was there in the room with you, and huh. we couldn't stare at him with our eyes when we appeared. So I did kind of work with that. Paul was the hero and New Testament, they don't like the Gospels, they still don't. Um, Paul was in, Paul's still in. So today, if you're gonna make an argument, you use Paul. All the most sophisticated arguments use Paul. And then you bring the Gospels in when and where you can, but you bring them in according to their criteria because Mm -hmm. it's their university and it's the way they do theology and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would say the biggest thing I have added starting in the 80s and 90s was filling out my Jesus really appeared with one word. He really appeared bodily. And I started emphasizing that after I got out of Michigan State, and I was free to make up my own theory. Then Tom Wright's book comes along in 2003, and he argues what I call, I I made Bill Craig laugh his head off when I said this one time. I said, Tom Wright is long, written the longest word study in history. Because his word study on Anastasis and Iguero, the two Greek words, is over 500 pages long. And if you don't know what those two words mean after 500 pages, and here's Tom. Tom says, it's bodily, bodily, bodily. Hmm. Um, He calls it, he calls it, uh, he has different words for immortality, but he calls it uh, physical, physicality, resurrected physicality, he calls it. And so Jesus raised bodily, and all of a sudden, here's a hero, uh, Tom Wright, who dares to sack. I can give you other ones. Um, Gundry, not Stan yeah. Gundry, but his brother, Bob Gundry, Michael Kona. They're arguing for body. That's a big change for me. Um, forgetting about Buddhism, because at that okay. time, I was fighting Buddhism. I, okay. I went past that. I think maybe today, the biggest positive change is if you ask me what are the best evidences for the resurrection... In my mind, people in evangelicalism, by and large, would not understand my, my three, three top choices. They're not the normal ones we give, um, but they're ones that will stand the strongest critical objections. So that's changed. What I would say the best, ever they're all New Testament, and they're from Paul, but no argument there. It's just they would go, what? You think that's the strongest? Yeah, well, what are you going to use? The Gospel of John? Yeah. Well, you'll be laughed out of court if you do that. So I, do, I, do, okay. You have to do your own path when you're going down to people who don't like the material.
0: Okay. So don't lay out those three arguments right now. We're going to come to your twelve facts soon. But I have to ask, what would you just consider those three strongest facts? I know everybody's wondering that at this point. What would those arguments be without laying them out? All right. So say them, but don't explain them. Right? Yeah. Okay i think there's a tie
1: between one and two but there's a little edge okay. on one by far the strongest argument in my mind is an argument that virtually every critical scholar accepts even atheist new testament scholars and that's in galatians chapter one and in galatians chapter two notice it's not matthew mark Lick, or job hmm. after paul is converted which everybody dates to two to three years after the crucifixion so it's 32 to 33 if you think of 30 A.D. crucifixion. Mm -hmm. 32-33, Paul's converted, and he specifically says in Galatians 1, three years later, I went up Mm -hmm. to Jerusalem, and I spent two weeks, 15 days, with Peter, and I didn't see any other apostles except James. So Peter and James. Now, you know, what's the first thing you're going to ask Peter and James if you're Paul? I'll just give you my first question for them if I'm Paul. Hey, I've heard you guys saw the risen Jesus, and you probably heard I have. I don't want to hear rumors anymore. I want you guys to tell me what the risen Jesus looked like to you, and then I'll tell you what the risen Jesus looked like to me. That would be my first question. How can you get around the gospel? So, And in chapter 2, where Paul goes back to Jerusalem, Galatians 2, first 10 verses, it specifically says we discuss the definition of the gospel. Mm. And Paul defines that as, burial and resurrection of jesus but later in the new testament the gospel is the deity death and resurrection burial is not always there deity death resurrection so now i know they discussed it in this two trips to jerusalem and critics like to say we have paul's account and paul's an eyewitness but we have no other eyewitnesses of the other appearances and i go Except that Paul interviewed Peter and James and they were eyewitnesses and they discussed the gospel. And even Bart Ehrman says, he says, where do we get closer to the eyewitnesses than right here? So I'm gonna say Jerusalem, number one. Close second is an argument that when I gave it to my PhD students just a few years ago, they said, I'm halfway through my program. How come I've never even heard this argument before? Because it's so hot and being it's been around for a long time, but didn't make its way the numbers of scholars, the creedal argument. There's early Mm. creeds in the New Testament, dozens of them. Most of them are in Paul, but they're in the epistles, very rarely in the gospels, very rarely. But they're usually in the epistles. The best known one is 1 Corinthians 15. Some say three to five and some say three to seven. But that list of appearances is the most famous one. And virtually every scholar today is going to admit that some are most likely, well, most, and maybe even all, were, date they, they date in the 30s A.D., the creeds date in the 30s. So when someone says, how can you believe John? And they'll pick the latest one, right, just to make a bad point. John is plus 65 at 95 A.D. He's 65 years later. Um, yeah, how good a source is that? Well, I'll answer that. Better than any other religion has. Mm. 65 is better than the other one, but mm. I'll call the creeds from the 30s. That's number two. Number three, a little bit of a lag between two and three, but three still good, the so-called criteria for the New Testament. Mm. And believers know these. We use them all the time and probably don't even know we use them. Criteria would be things like this. Do you have eyewitnesses? Do you have early sources? Do you have enemy attestation? Do you have multiple attestation? Um, you know, multiple attestations are biggie because that's two heads are better than one. And Bart Ehrman, just to give you an example, allows fifteen independent sources for the crucifixion of Jesus within a hundred years. That's a period he uses for fair history. Hundred years, fifteen sources for Jesus for the crucifixion. Well, that's a lot of evidence for the crucifixion. So that's how you use the criteria. It's the things that historians use. Mm testament scholars use to verify texts so when you verify a text in the gospels how do you know that's true that was written way later well let me tell you hmm. why as john meyer might say um i can find four criteria that back up that fact if that's true that's a fact
0: hmm. so i'd say criteria number three that's super interesting and helpful now i have two broad questions before we jump into your 12 minimal facts and you can just kind of lay yeah. out the case here But you had an extensive section on the historical Jesus, that Jesus existed. Two-part question. Why don't you include the existence of Jesus as a minimal fact, and what would you say is the state of mythicism as a reputable position, at least as it's viewed within the academy?
1: Okay, if I take the second one first, you mean by mythicism or the mythicists, this would be people who say Jesus didn't or probably didn't ever exist yes well let me let me cite Bart Ehrman and a number of other people um uh, morris casey who have written books on this um totally out to lunch
0: is okay. the theory
1: that totally out to lunch is the theory that the new testament copied off ancient greek mythology what boltmann said was gospel truth in the 50s 40s 50s 60s and died in 76 Today, almost nobody believes it. In fact, one recent scholar who does believe it says I'm one of three in the whole world. So almost nobody believes it's an ancient myth. They're gonna rely on Paul and do something like what I said, the creeds, the criteria, that's how they're gonna make historical Jesus. Historical Jesus is in today, but the Jesus never lived view, which is they copied off Greek mythology and so on. Bart Ehrman goes off on it for 20 pages in his book on Did Jesus Exist? And he says he says some really tough things. He says, y'all who believe Jesus didn't live, there isn't a scholar among you. And then he says, well, there's a couple. He says, you have a couple with good credentials, but very, very few. Most of you don't have any good reasoning. And he said, some of you, your laughers for Jesus never, uh, your arguments for Jesus never lived he calls them laughers, he Mm. calls them jokes. And he said, y'all who self-publish your own books and have never been to school and don't have degrees and you call yourself experts, he says, you wonder why we don't quote you. He says, you're surprised you haven't made inroads into us. And Bart says, you haven't got a foothold in our group. You don't even have a toehold, nobody cares what you say. So those who think Jesus never lived, they talk to themselves. And they're very Mm. influential today, but there's almost not a scholar. There are a couple. There are a few very good scholars, but not very many. Okay. Um,
0: So, Fair enough. Why is it not a minimal fact? Just kind of quick answer. It seems like an obvious fact that meets your criteria. That what is? Uh, That Jesus existed.
1: Oh, because the minimal facts apply only to death and resurrection of Jesus.
0: Oh, that's the focus of. Okay, got it.
1: Yeah, if I wanted a lot of guys, a lot of major guys have done what I call minimal facts, but they've done them for Jesus's whole life, and that's how the guys in the Third Quest do an historical Jesus book, is by applying this kind of thing to all thirty-three, whatever many years.
0: Okay, that's great, obvious point. Not sure how I missed it. Let's keep going. One more question for you, though, is this is jumping ahead somewhat to your second volume where you're going to talk about naturalistic hypotheses but you kind of uh point forward to that describing how there's not a lot of scholars today who just take one hypothesis the swoon theory the wrong tomb theory hallucinations rather it's more of a worldview resistance in terms of naturalism so Bart Ehrman has made this argument that philosophically historians cannot even investigate the miraculous it's outside of the discipline of history seems to me I have one or two options either to say no historians can investigate it or we can't do it strictly by history but we can still know it by other means which route do you take or a third route and why
1: okay I take a little bit of both I actually agree with Bart Ehrman in part now, my research assistant, by contrast, Ben Shaw, who's got a PhD, did his dissertation on the resurrection. He did his resurrection on this, he did his dissertation on this question. Can a historian qua historian conclude mm. that the resurrection happened? Wow. Mike Lacone and I are on his committee. We're like Michigan State. Ben, you can get away with whatever you can defend, <laughs> even if we disagree with you. Ben agrees a bit with both of us. He thinks an historian can say Jesus was raised from the dead. I say, uh, he should be able to kind of on the fence. I'm a little bit close to Ehrman here. Um, but you're right. The other view is still true. A lot of historians will say, I can't do it. I'm an historian. Talk to my theologian or philosopher buddy. See, they give you the, they give you the path to go to. And I don't care if historians can't find the answer, but philosophers and theologians can, we're still hmm. going to get the defense of the resurrection. So I'd say both. I'm a little bit skeptical of what an historian can tell you, according to his or her training. But the fact that there's other scholars, my PhD is in history and philosophy religion. People know me as fitting into philosophy departments. I could just as easily have been a member of the history department because it's history religion, philosophy religion is what I did my PhD on and my dissertation was in history and i had to i had to satisfy all three departments at michigan state history philosophy and religion so wow. i kind of agree with that but okay. as long as you can get there i don't care what your area is if you can get to the resurrection i'm happy with you
0: <laughs> good stuff well let's jump into the the 12 facts and let's start with the first one that is one of the minimal facts and you say jesus died due to the effects of roman crucifixion now you walk through the historical and the medical and the enemy attestation multiple attestation this we don't have to walk through uh some of that that's been laid out but what struck me as most interesting is you had this in-depth i don't remember how many pages it is where you are studying the different medical doctors opinions about how jesus died I had always leaned towards asphyxiation, but never done the deep dive and always wanted to. When I saw this, I was like, awesome. Gary has done this. So maybe catch us up to speed a little bit about what how most doctors view Jesus dying by crucifixion and why. Why
1: they take that view? Yeah. Yeah, a couple years ago, Ben Shaw, again, my research assistant, and I teamed up with a fellow named Jonathan Koppel. Jonathan is an M.D. Ph.D. from uh, Texas Tech, I believe, and he's a neurologist. So we got a good guy there, good medical doctor, and the three of us did an article. It was published by the Baylor University Medical Journal. And we're not trying to prove what Jesus died of. All we're doing is doing a landscape of medical doctors who answer this. And there are more medical doctors or medical specialists who... See, you can, be, you can be a PhD in medical school. You don't have to be an MD. You could, you could be a, a chemist and be teacher in medical school. So people who do medicine with earned doctorates, there are more or about the same number of doctors in our study who think that the death by crucifixion is death by asphyxiation mm-hmm. than all the other half dozen possibilities mm-hmm. put together. In fact... There's more who believe asphyxiation than double the rest of the half dozen put together. That doesn't make it right. It makes us allow. It allows us to say the majority of the views in the published medical literature is that Jesus died by de- uh, death by asphyxiation. That's the that's the most common medical view. And not every doctor feels sure. that they can just start out and write a paper on. They got to be a historian then to do something on the uh, crucifixion.
0: So how much do you think that's that? Everyone. How much do you think that medical case adds to our confidence that Jesus died by crucifixion?
1: How much depends on the fact that he would die by asphyxiation?
0: No. How much does the medical case that's put forward by these doctors add to oh. the historical case of him dying by crucifixion? Because for me, I've typically laid out. There's non-Christian sources. There's multiple attestation. I've said the medical evidence is interesting and adds to it. It's like another layer, but not the core of it. Is that how you see yeah, it?
1: Yeah, I mean, like just uh, yeah, it's very good, Sean. Uh, just citing Bart Ehrman. Why would an atheist New Testament scholar give us fifteen independent writers from 100 years after the cross? 100. By the way, they're inside the New Testament. They're outside the New Testament. Fifteen independent sources that say Jesus died by crucifixion. That's pretty good historical evidence to go along with that. But in that medical article with the Baylor uh, Medical Journal, we argue at the end, we're not saying asphyxiation has to be the route. And by the way, it's asphyxiation, not suffocation. There's a distinction between the words, and even medical doctors flip the words around. Hmm. But asphyxiation, what I'm told is suff- uh, 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 uh uh, asphyxiation is when you die by something. Something's not working internally. You've got a bad case of asthma. You've got pneumonia. You've got... Huh. But but the other view is when someone puts a pillow over your face or a, a plastic bag over your head. Interesting. It's a juice But asphyxiation is in, in you. Hmm. And that's a, that's a predominant view. Now, in Jesus' case, they did things to him, right? They hung him and they stabbed him, but he sure. could still breathe so until he couldn't breathe anymore and then it's asphyxiation so that's the most common view but we end the article and we say we are not saying that this has to be a death by asphyxiation it looks like it is from the majority we can't go majority but a lot of doctors have a lot of reasons um we think it's probably asphyxiation but our theory does not rely on that it relies on two other bits of evidence one is a series of romans our Roman arguments, for example, one a Roman writer says that when a per, when the family wanted to get their family member down off the cross, the centurion who thinks he's dead, he is, he says this guy's dead. Family says, can we take the body and bury it? He goes, just a minute. They take the body off the cross. They stab the body with the spear to make sure the body is doubly dead. And now family members take it away. And they take it. So this Roman source, and there's other ones, they break ankles. Um, by the way, that's a good reason. Why do you break ankles if it's not asphyxiation? You go, oh, just to be mean. No. Why is it I always breaking an axle? You can throw a rock at his head. I mean, why break hmm. ankles? Because when a person is down and can't pull up, you can't, if your life depends on pull ups, you're not living very long. Nobody is. <laughs> but if they break your ankles, that tells me something's happening with your breathing. But hmm. it doesn't have to be that. One is the Roman sources. We have historical sources, 15 independent sources. The Roman source stab them with the spear. The second reason is the most powerful one of all it beats medicine and it was raised by David Strauss in the mid-19th mm. century. It's called Strauss's Critique, but this guy was, I don't know, a fundamentalist pastor or would call him a reprobate. He was the liberal in the 19th century. He was famous for introducing what became Boltmann's views in the 20th century, mythology. He did not believe anything about Jesus, and he died a disillusioned man who rejected a conservative uh, uh, orthodox view of God and the afterlife, which were the marks of liberals. He rejected them both, and yet he said this. He says, there's some jokers in our time who think Jesus didn't die on the cross. It was the most popular view when he started writing. He said, that view is a joke. He said, think about it. If you crucify this guy and you put him in the grave for a few days, I don't care, make it a week, make it two weeks. I don't know. What's he gonna look like when he comes out? Now, because I have a very, for a lot of people, a very nasty hobby, Um, All my life, I've gone snake hunting. I've caught hundreds of snakes, and I've been bitten hundreds of times uh, Mm. by harmless snakes. I did get bit once by a rattlesnake, but it doesn't matter. So because I'm snake hunting, I stepped on a lot of nails out in the woods when you're turning things over. And I'm going to tell you, when you step on a nail, number one, you don't keep your foot on that nail very long, like less than a second. And you can't walk for two or three days. Now, Mm. if Jesus is on a big spike for a long time, and you expect him to walk, and you beat him up first, and if you stab him with a spear, what's he going to look like when he appears? This is David Strauss. What does he look like when he appears to the disciples? We used to have a phrase in the 60s. I don't know if anybody uses it today, but we used to call it, death warmed over. You look like death warmed over this morning. <laughs> Jesus would have looked like death warmed over, getting off what's he look like? He's struggling, he can't stand up, he leans against the doorpost, he's sweating, he's bleeding, he's soaked he's soaked his clothes with sweat and with blood, and he knocks on the door and he tells the disciples, Guys, I told you I would rise again from the dead. I think they'd look at each other and go, Um, who who did this joke? Who and I think Peter would go. Andrew, get a bowl. Mary, get some water. Get us some rags. This me needs help. Get over here and lay on the couch. Okay, what the swoon theory that Jesus never died, or the apparent death theory, what it proves Mm -hmm. is that Jesus was alive, but he was not raised. That's what comes from, if you want to say he faked death, the argument is, congratulations, you got a living Jesus. Now, where does that get you? Because He's not, they, they're not dumb. They mm. know enough to know this guy isn't ready to go to heaven and sing with the angels. He's in bad shape. Of course, and then where does he go? That, that's the number one reason. Asphyxiation is helpful. The Roman sources are great. The multiple sources are great. But Strauss's critique historically since about 1864, it has been the end of the swoon theory. Scholars still today say Strauss killed the apparent death theory. Wow. That's the reason. That's the reason to be sure Jesus was dead. He couldn't pull it off
0: otherwise strauss killed the theory pun intended of course there and i can, agree with you that's you a strong a strong critique I now your minimal facts that. pun intended i like that your minimal facts have two criteria number one about 90 percent of scholarly uh, support and belief plus very good evidential support and you emphasize it's more about the evidential support it's not just a majority type of argument now yeah. jesus died by crucifixion if we added presumably muslim scholars that would drop this way below 90 percent right because of surah 4 which says he was crucified not only appeared to do so now yeah. some will adopt like uh, certain sects of islam will take the swoon theory some will say they made somebody appear to but wouldn't that completely yeah. change the first fact
1: no now first of all to make clear I never say anywhere, people cite me, but I never say anywhere that you have to have 90 percentile of the scholars. It just turns out that it's more like 95, but I don't require that. It's just okay. that everybody allows this. Okay, secondly, no, the Muslim theory does not change this one iota. And here's hmm. why you go, well, what do you mean? Look how many scholars they have, and look how many scholars, and they have degrees too. Okay, here's the problem. What is their source and why do they hold this? It's the Quran. When was the Quran written? Well, if we can believe the conservative Muslim view, 630 A.D., it was left. And when was Jesus crucified? 30 A.D. So real simple math, the Quran comes 600 years later. Nobody, 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 nobody else thinks that a source 600 years later can tell you what happened 600 years earlier. Hmm. It's... The source, listen, over here on my shelf, I've got a book by a Muslim scholar. And he says, The critics, the Christians are going to say, That comes from your book, and your book is 600 years later. You can't do history 600 years later. And the author actually says, They're right. Huh. Whoa. And then he says, But when they say that to me, let me tell you my response The Gospels have so many errors in it. Okay, okay, Mm. let's put these two against each other. You guys are right, the Quran is not a history book. You can't, I mean, and not in the sense that you can refute the crucifixion with it, it's too late. But you guys have a lot of errors in the gospels. Here's what they don't understand. If they don't allow a source from 600 years later, they've got nothing. But what about that you guys have errors? That's why I did the minimal facts. Everybody at Michigan State and most scholars today believe the New Testament's full of errors. Minimal facts works around the errors let me Mm. give you just a goofy illustration i saw a magician one time up on a stage and this woman crawls into a box and he puts a lot of swords through the box and then she stands up and walks out then he let us all come up and look at what happened she's in the box but because she's really limber she twisted her body along this preformed line and the swords went into other categories my point is Mm. she missed the path of the i don't care how many errors you think there are in the Bible. I'm going to use facts that everybody allows, even atheist New Testament scholars. So obviously, the reason? Discrepancies don't touch these facts. I'm using the ones for which there are no discrepancies. And Mm -hmm. if I can still get a resurrection, the worst thing I could have, this is the word. this is not me. you got to remember I teach at Liberty University. The worst thing you would have is a Swiss cheese New Testament where Jesus still is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose to the dead. It's a little Swiss cheese because they find critics problems. problem. We still have the gospel, and we're still going to heaven, and the gospel is still true. So mm. that guy saying the, the Quran can't, can't refute 30 AD, he's totally right. But when he does errors, everybody does errors. It does not refute these key facts. I mean, does anybody think Bart Ehrman thinks there's no errors in Scripture? Bart Ehrman says not even reliable. Well, how do, why does he admit all my facts? Because they're facts. That's why. All right, good response. No, that's great. You've been doing this for decades. You learn your kind of, just like that woman in the box, you learn your way around these things.
0: (laughs) No, no, I love it. That's great. Well, let's shift to the next one. Uh, You said Jesus was buried most likely in a private tomb. So, what's kind of the basic case for the burial and the consensus on this? And it seems like this has changed, hasn't it, over the years?
1: Yeah, but remember, burial is not one of my minimal facts. Burial is one of the second six. Maybe we should name them real fast so that people know. Um, Because my minimal facts start with Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay. and the very next one is the disciples had experiences that they believed to be appearances of the risen jesus i don't even count the empty tomb because the empty tomb there's mm-hmm. as many evidence for the empty tomb as there is for any fact but scholars don't like it so i put it in my second six okay a burial is way in the second six i think it's good the evidence for the a burial is is good but it's not one of my six facts so i go from Jesus died by crucifixion so the disciples thought they saw him again that's number two and that mm-hmm. by the way is not only the most important fact for us that they saw him walking and talking after he died on the cross it's not that's the most central but it's also the strongest along with the crucifixion and that he was seen afterwards are the two strongest I'll tell you this of all the appearances in the uh, in the uh, well mostly all gospels you got Paul but and you got James. But of the appearances to Christ, keep these two things in mind. Most of them are to groups. That's Mm -hmm. really important. Most of them are to groups. And secondly, the strongest appearance is the appearance to the 12. It's multiply attested over and over. And even the Jesus Seminar, critics that they are, even Bart Ehrman, even Dom Crossan, who I just got an email from while I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, even <laughs> Dom Crossan, all these guys uh, will say that uh, the cru- – they, they're not questioning the crucifixion at all. They allow it. And they allow that there were multiple reports of group appearances. By the way, here's a here's a citation. Talk about Dom Crossin. Here's This is pretty close to a quote. Uh Crossan says, "I take it absolutely for granted that Jesus died by crucif- by ro- Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. I take it absolutely for granted." That's awesome. Marcus Borg, another one from the Jesus Seminar, Marcus Borg, uh, says almost exact same thing. Quote: Bart Ehrman, fifteen sources. So that and the appearances are a
0: one-two punch. OK, so let's walk through. There's a list in the book where you list the 12 together, but not necessarily in the order of the six minimal facts and then the six uh, attested facts. It's more like you list them kind of step by step chronologically in the life of Jesus, even though they're all uh, well they're, more they're telling not, the story of Jesus, so to speak.
1: Well, they're not mixed in my table of contents. I'll, I'll do it this way. If You, you probably have it right there. In the table of contents I have the six minimal facts if I can turn the page let me get my glasses <laughs> the table of contents I have the minimal historical facts is part three okay and then halfway down I mean you know you see these other facts the next one is the other six known historical facts. So six plus six equals 12. Notice burial is in the second list. Gotcha. The first six. If you just want me to say them.
0: Yeah, the say the first for six. six.
1: We've done two. Yep. He died. They thought he appeared. The disciples' lives were totally transformed. And you always say, man, you've written the best book on this. Um, the, the, we always say, don't, don't ever say, you can prove the disciples died for their faith. That's bogus. I, I mean, you can go a long way, but you have to use sources that are not as late as the Muslim source to the New Testament, but they're late on the New Testament. So always say, the disciples are willing to die for their faith. That means the disciples are transformed. And as you say in your book, there's no evidence that anybody recanted. So that's great, the transformations. Yeah. Um, it was proclaimed, I skipped one The resurrection was proclaimed very early Early and transformations happened at the same time That's the okay. creedal evidence And then the last two are James and Paul Burial's not there Now when you turn the page and you see the other six Empty tomb is one, burial is one, etc
0: Okay, so folks, so they can hear this. Your minimal facts are Jesus died by crucifixion. No debate about that. The disciples reported experiences they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. Number we're two. Number disputed
1: about that. That the number, disciples thought they saw appearances is not disputed.
0: Good. Third one is they proclaimed the resurrection early, right after their experiences. So like yes. you're saying, we'll come back to this. There's no early non-resurrection gospel that was proclaimed fourth James I'm sorry fourth is the transformation in their lives yeah. to the willingness yes. to die and then James yes. and Paul those are the six okay yeah. let me come back to the second one here you said the disciples yeah. report experiences they thought were actually appearances of the risen Jesus now here's but where they some thought, debate they thought they, thought, they thought they were appearances they thought they were now here's where some debate comes in that we have the testimony of Paul in first Corinthians 15 one of the accepted letters three accounts and acts strong historical con- case can be made for this few people question Paul uh, few people question Peter we have multiple accounts of Peter singled and named out but when it comes to the other 12 now they're just mentioned as a group not mentioned as individuals so how much confidence can we have in say James the son of Zebedee or Matthew, or Thaddeus who's not specifically mentioned and we don't have his direct eyewitness claim that he saw there is in Jesus? I say two things.
1: Number one, the way I will the way I will um, nuance that claim of disciples' transformations, I will say as far as we know and all the literature we have, okay. it's positive. But here's the more important one. There's four big names in the early research. You've named everybody but one in our talking here. Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, and John. They're the four most influential Christians probably of all time. Hmm. And when Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk to the eyewitnesses, this is my number one reason, remember, he sees Peter and James and Paul. Three of the four are there. And when he comes back in Galatians 2, John is there. And in Galatians 2:2, which all basically all scholars accept critics, 2 two Paul laid on the table the gospel he preached and he says right after that, they added nothing to me. They mm. added nothing. So the Gospels the same. I mean the, the gospel teaching is the same. and a few verses later, verses nine and 10, they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. So okay, now who did? At least Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, we have them. Okay, if they're the big four, Peter, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, they're the most influential ones, we have first century martyrdom reports on three of the four. And I know you reject the second century one for John. But a lot of people think John's the only one that, you know, nothing ever happened to him. But we have a second century report. You can do what you want with that. But we have Peter. Uh, James, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, we have first century witnesses and later, but we have them as early as the first century to their martyrdoms. Hmm. So I say, at least those guys, and you go, what about the rest of them? I say, it's irrelevant to me. There's four here. We can track them. Three of them died, and the rest of them are willing to. And now they go, how do you know they're willing? Do you read their minds? <laughs> I love this when I can when they say that. I think they walk into a trap. Can you read their minds? How do you know they're willing to die? I'll say, I don't read their minds. I read their feet. When you go back into a city over and over and over again, or you go in the same geographic area where you will beat up and left for dead, just a walking distance away, guess what? You're more interested in proclaiming your truth than you are about your life. Hmm. So they're willing to die. But I make a big deal of Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, if you want to use John, if you don't want to use John, we have They're the four that are in uh, Galatians one and two. Only the first three are in Galatians one, and that not right. notice why that's why those guys are in the minimal facts. That makes sense.
0: Now I th- the best, and that's why I think it's the best evidence for the resurrection. Those two trips mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. So what, what's interesting when it comes to the other apostles? Another potential angle here is when you look at the beginning of Acts. Uh, they lay out the name specifically. In Acts chapter 1, it says Peter and John, yep. James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the son of James. They're specifically mentioned by name. And then Peter yep. stands up, and he's going to lead and speak on behalf of the apostles. And he says, we are witnesses of these things. So yep. we don't have as strong of a case For the appearance to say Thomas as we do to say Peter but his name is mentioned there like I'm not willing to just completely give up with and say we don't have an adequate historical case it's a good historical case just not as strong as Paul and Peter
1: how about how about a couple other hints to get there in that same list that you give that the Apostles are there it says Mary and the boys were there, and it says Mary and James were there. So someone says, when did James become a Christian? i go, I don't think anybody knows, but here's a couple parameters for you. At the cross, if you can believe John, John gives, um, Jesus gives, John says Jesus told his mother to go home with John. Now, and they go, why not James? Well, I don't think James was present at the cross. I think that's, that can be kind of clear i'm thinking chances are james isn't a christian yet but he's there shortly after the ascension so i think james's conversion happens a little bit between the cross and that upper room that you just mentioned Mm. because james is there and we have an account it's not trustworthy but we have an account for about 125 a.d where jesus appears to james that is that is recorded in the gospel of the hebrews uh, Jesus appears to his brother. So I think James comes in there, but and he's there too. And also notice in that first chapter in Acts, we have to pick a 12th disciple because Judas died. So we have to pick a witness who's That's been right. with us from the beginning, and he has to be a witness of the resurrection. Then Peter hmm. winds up and he preaches the first Christian sermon post-Jesus, and in Acts 2.22, he uses the argument that nailed me way back with my German pastor when... Uh, Peter says in Acts 2 22, Jesus is a man approved among you. How do you know he was approved? Next two verses. The miracles he did, including he was raised from the dead. So Peter preaches in his first sermon that the resurrection of Jesus indicates that Jesus' teachings are true, and that's why God raised him. So we have everything right there. And if you say to me, well, we don't have an appearance to Thaddeus. Okay, I have a second reason for you. You're right on the first one. We have that list in Acts 1. Here's the second one. I've already said it, but I'll repeat it. The best evidence, the appearances, the appearances to the twelve. All the apostles are there in the beginning. I what if somebody fell away later? What if they didn't? Well, what if they did? What if they didn't? See, this argument's going nowhere, but we don't have any data, as you say. I'll quote Sean McDowell. <laughs> as you say, we have no evidence of recanting, neither in the New Testament or in the early reliable sources. Nothing, but I still I concentrate on Paul, Peter, and James, for which we have outstanding data. Hey, one thing we should mention: Sean, in Acts, and Acts, there are a lot of creeds, and in Acts, though they're called sermon summaries, and they're primarily found in Acts 1 through 5, 10, 13, and 17. If you go back and look at those and every everyone the gospels given the resurrections present in everyone it's a deity death and resurrection of Jesus Acts one through five so if you I would tell my scholar my PhD students this if you ask a conservative how do you know what happened in the earliest church after the gospels oh easy read the book of Acts you ask a liberal how do you know what happened read the book of Acts what you guys don't agree do you no way. What's the evangelical say? I take the whole book of Acts. What's the liberal say? I use the sermon summaries. I use the creeds. <laughs> but just still get it's the still data. In there. That's the value of the creeds.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really a great point from Acts 1 when they're replacing uh, an apostle for Judas. Two criteria. Been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry and a witness to his resurrection. That assumes the very names listed there at the beginning of Acts were a part of the 12, and we're also witnesses to the resurrection. So not as strong yeah. as Peter giving his own account, but that's a strong historical record we can't simply dismiss. All right. We so have let's
1: Peter given okay. his own we have Peter given his own account in Galatians one and two as told by Paul. And the critics think Paul is reliable. By the way, along with Galatians one and two, you've got maybe the strongest verse, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse eleven. He's talking about all the people who saw Jesus, and he's got two groups, he's got we've well, got three groups, but the 12, a group called all the apostles, and a, and a group of 500. And after he talks about the apostles seeing Jesus in verse 11, extremely important verse, he says, whether it is them, he just got done talking about the apostles, whether it's them or whether it's me. So we preach, and so you believe. We have Paul saying, I don't know if he means all 12. He didn't say all 12. I'm not going to die for that. But he did say the disciples, more than just three, were running around preaching the resurrection. And here's the important point um, that they were preaching the same thing. Mm. Paul and the disciples are eyewitnesses. And that's why Galatians 1 and 2 are so powerful. They're just a little. The argument goes like this boom. It all just. Fits right in together like like this that you got the creeds and the ax sermon summaries everything
0: so jesus died by crucifixion minimal fact second the apostles had experiences they believed were of the risen jesus the third yes. minimal fact is the proclamation of the resurrection appearances took place very soon after the very early after the experiences. Now, I had to spend a lot of time on this in my dissertation because if the apostles were willing to suffer and die, I had to show that that belief was tied to the resurrection. So you laid out in your chapter even more detail than I laid out in my own study, but what are just some of the basic facts why we know there is no early christian faith apart from the resurrection and the resurrection isn't some kind of late mythical add-on to this movement that was already taking place
1: right two ways that last part first scholars don't believe there were add-ons they don't believe they brought in well christians could have made one up but they didn't get one from any other foreign religion or hellenistic stuff because there's dying rising gods in the ancient world too Mm -hmm. they don't think christians copied the 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 three guys, the, the main guy who's talking and says, I'm one of three guys who believe these theories. I understand from one of his students, he's a Christian. Number two, he believes it doesn't touch the resurrection. So they just think there's stories out there. They don't relate them. That's one. But uh, well, what was your first question here just before? the? What if they? Oh, oh, how do we know the resurrection is central? Because whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, it's not death, burial, resurrection, which we say oftentimes. But burial's not there
0: probably mm. more than half the
1: time. It's deity of Christ, death, and resurrection. You go, whoa, whoa, time mm. out. How do you get deity of Christ? Because of the names they use. And Lord, just to take one, Lord in the New Testament, a lot of books being written on this. Lord in the New Testament is the, well, one of the there's several words for Lord, but the major word for Lord is the Old Testament equivalent of Jehovah. Hmm. Guess who Lord is? Well, he could be Lord of the Manor. Yeah, well, Jehovah wasn't Lord of the Manor. So if you're going to use the name of Jehovah, here's a great example. Creed. This is Creed. We cite Paul, but it's Creed. Romans 10:9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now notice, deity, resurrection, death. That's the way it happens Mm -hmm. in that verse. Just right after that, Paul tells you what he means by Lord. And he quotes Joel. Whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon the Lord is Paul's verse for what Lord means. And Lord, there is Jehovah. So, Deity, death, resurrection are all there. Someone says, oh, it's attack on. It is? Well, then how come every time the gospel is repeated, it's always deity, death, resurrection? You get the point after a while? Deity, death, resurrection. Don't leave resurrection out. What's 1 Corinthians 15 say? You leave the resurrection out, we have nothing. Mm. By the way, center, I think the fact that in my dissertation, I have empty tomb and burial are part of the original six and I have four more. One of them is centrality. And I could move it up mm. into the minimum of fact. Center could mm. be up there. Oh, oh, virtually nobody says that the resurrection wasn't a central doctrine. But mm. my question would be if someone says it's not, how come it's in the gospel every single time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul in particular? It's there.
0: I think your section is as powerful and extensive as I've seen from their creeds that predate the New Testament, the writings of Paul, the Gospels, the preaching in the book of Acts, the early church fathers. I mean, there's no layer I could find that's absent of the resurrection.
1: Yeah, it's it's like this.
0: Exactly. I think that's it makes sense that that's minimal fact. Now, we talked about the evidence of uh, James you hinted at. One of the objections is that we have James who we don't really know it was the appearance of Jesus that converted him. Now, you cited yep. earlier that we have the account in First Corinthians chapter 15. And then yep. we have kind of what's called the Gospel of Hebrews, I think is the title, mid-second century, that has kind of an appearance to James. Now, Which is only, Hassan, it's only a
1: fragment. It's only a it's, fragment but the appearance of james is there yes
0: so it's multiply a test i know crossing goes for a third source and maybe the gospel of thomas 12 but thomas. i'm not convinced by that i don't think you are either i know, it.
1: I know but, the gospel of thomas 12 makes no sense to me at all hmm. as that as backing hey, if it backs it up it backs it up but i don't see i don't care if thomas backs it up it's fine with me but i don't see it in, in saying 12.
0: i agree i'd like to be convinced by that but i just didn't see see that it was there How do we know it was the resurrection appearance that converted James? Or if it's not what converted him, does that really ultimately matter uh, for the strength of his conversion?
1: No. And, And what I would say is, we learn of James's unbelief in three places minimum, Mark 3, Mark 6, John 7. In Mark 6, he seems to side, he and the other brothers, Seem to side with the townspeople who think Jesus is mentally ill. That's the Greek word there. The mentally, the the word for there could mean schizophrenia or out of their mind in some sense, and 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 they're embarrassed. I assume the brothers are embarrassed because Jesus is bringing their good name down. For all we know, maybe they're carpenters and it's hurting their business, so they pulled Jesus aside. They didn't believe. Mark six again. They didn't believe. John seven makes it real plain. For as not they believed. They, for as yet they did not believe in Jesus. Then later again he's not at the cross. I think that's a fair. The fact that he's not at the cross, if he's hmm. a believer and even a good brother, why isn't he there? And but he's in the up. He's right after the upper room. So it's a. I don't know that the appearance did. We do have the gospel of the Hebrews, uh, but. It looks like by far the best argument, however, okay. i really I really don't care. Okay. The pain point is, <laughs> is James one of those? who sees the risen Jesus, his life changed. We have Josephus saying he was basically the pastor in Jerusalem. He mm-hmm. dies in martyrdom in 62 AD. And a non-biblical, non-Christian writer tells us this source. And we have many other sources we could use, but I think Josephus is the one we will go to. Josephus writes, by the way, just about 25 years later. So, yeah. And he's not a Christian. So we, we have we know james is part of that transformation group because he wasn't mark three mark six john two critics don't question that uh as a rule you have two painter and bauckham both say he probably uh that probably doesn't mean that but that's that's a small minority of everybody and then all of a sudden he's in the church he's in and they're in the upper room after the ascension and he's he and peter are poor are co-pastors in jerusalem when paul comes there for a visit Hmm. so I think James is not an issue, and, and Paul is so well known, you are not going to find even hardly a single scholar who's going to question Paul's conversion because he thought, wow. remember all of them, the disciples saw, James saw, Paul saw, the rest of it's the same, they all saw what they thought was an appearance of the risen Jesus, That mm. that's not disputed, and Paul's our okay. best witness
0: so we won't go through all six of the other not minimal facts but well-supported facts but let me just come back to the one about the burial of jesus Uh, because there's been some prominent scholars like Crossan who have denied this and i think more recently uh bart ehrman has kind of backtracked and said he doesn't accept the burial where is scholarship as a whole on this and maybe what are just a few of the key historical points you think are so convincing that we can trust this account um,
1: okay, a lot of things to say here. Uh, first of all, yeah, you're right. Bart Ehrman has changed. He used to hold the private burial. How about the fact that we don't have any sources that tell us that Jesus is buried what's called a trench, a rectangle in the ground, and he was put there, and, yeah, the dogs ate him, or he was thrown in the trash heap, Gehenna, in Jerusalem, and they burned him. No sources. Well, the comeback mm-hmm. is... That's what often happened with crucifixion victims. Uh yes and no. We have a source in Josephus that tells us that Jews were so particular about the resurrection of the body, as far as the trash heap is concerned, that they even buried people who uh, capital punishment people. They buried them. Okay, well that could be in the ground. Okay, I was only answering the Gehenna thing, the trash heap, but. There is more evidence for the tomb easily. Bill Craig has probably done the most on this. Certainly, one of them who does an argument for Joseph of Arimathea had to be the had to be this most likely it's this tomb. All the data we have link it to a man Joseph from mm-hmm. the um, you know Sanhedrin. Uh, his tomb. There's many of them in Jerusalem. Many. Uh, you go. Well, that's only three or four facts. How many do you have for he was thrown to the ground? Well, just that usually mm. occurred. Now you can't even use that because Josephus says they, you know, that's they didn't treat them that way. So, but here's my biggest comeback on this. I think we're pretty solid because we have a lot of facts for the burial. But you got to be. I'm so used to arguing what I'm going to say next. If okay. I'm in a little dialogue, I'm going to say, I don't give a rip. All right, and you go. Why would you say that it's gospel? I, 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 I'm arguing for deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Sure. Now let me just make a point to show you I would tell the critic, let me make a point to show you that uh, right now I don't for all intent and purposes for right now, if I'm talking about this at the university, I don't care where he was buried. Let me make a point. If the, if the disciples stole the body and moved him to Peter's living room, and didn't know what to do with him, and he's wrapped up in a linen cloth on Peter's couch. He's not buried in any of the above things we've answered well, he took him out of the tomb. But what happens on Easter Sunday? Darn it, Jesus rises in Peter's living room i What I mean is I don't if they put him in a trench. If they put him in a tomb, if he's in a tomb, but we don't know where it is. The most important point is, was he dead on the cross? Yes. And what happened mm-hmm. afterwards? He was seen. What's the best appearance? The 12. And most of the appearance accounts are group accounts. You know what? And I would say, again, if I have a short time and I'm speaking in the university, I got the crucifixion. Easy. I got the appearances. Easy. The best one is the 12. And you're going to try to slow me down and ask me what happened on the burial? Let's talk about the appearances and that's why the minimal facts work so well i think the evidence is very strong that he was buried in, in a uh, private tomb joseph because there's no facts to the contrary hmm. i mean nothing substantial but but you know
0: beyond that i don't use it i i, I care that's that fair. jesus died and he was raised and seen i mean it, the two facts in the burial that are interesting to me of course is that it's multiply attested and that yeah. it would be embarrassing potentially to have somebody from the very group that condemned Jesus to death to give him this honorable burial, of course. That's an and interesting it, factor.
1: Joseph never Joseph never corrects it. He doesn't yeah. come out and say no that you know, there's no contrary. There's just a, a list of data for the burial. And I give some of it there in the book. There's a list of data for the burial Like I said, if he would rise from Peter's living room, he can certainly (laughs) arise from a a dirt trench in the ground. Fair enough. I'm interested. Nothing in my faith depends on where he was buried, although I think it's good. I think you're right. Joseph is good. But
0: I do want to know that he died and that he was seen by multiple people. That makes sense. I do think it's remarkable that we'll move on, that we have the name Joseph. We have where he's from, Arimathea. We have his financial status, obviously, a rich man's tomb, and his position that he held. I mean, these are not insignificant facts in Jerusalem that was smaller than people think. It would be hard to make up something like this that's not true and, and get away with it.
1: How about the fact that we have four Gospels? Now, somebody's going to say, oh, the Gospels are late sources. Well, yeah, they're later than the creeds and they're later than Paul. But you tell me who the earliest sources are for Krishna? Forty-two hundred years later, for the uh, for the Bhagavad Gita, eighteen hundred years later, for the Upanishads, uh, these other religions. Buddha, I got a Buddhist book on my shelf over here where the guy starts the book out and says, "We don't have any evidence like Christianity. Our earliest word statements of Buddhist are six to eight hundred years later." And then he makes this outstanding. He's a PhD professor in mm-hmm. England. He says, "We don't know what Buddha taught. The sources are too late." By the way, they're still earlier than than the, Quran, than the Quran on the New Testament, but he says we don't know what he taught. So even the Gospels are early, and here's my point: those guys did not write those four Gospels in four bedrooms in the same house. They wrote them differently around the whole Mediterranean, and they all tell the same story of Josephus without looking over each other's shoulder. Uh, you said multiple attestation. You're exactly right. That's a very strong evidence that that's the story they all. Mm. And the women go to the tomb. How embarrassing. Not the men. They were scared. But the women went. That's embarrassing testimony, which is a criteria. So this again, we're, we're, we're doing this stuff.
0: You took me exactly where I was hoping to go next on the empty tomb, which, again, is not part of your minimal facts. But it yep. seems like you said your best estimate was about 80% of scholars agreed with this, if I read that right. But, yeah. The, so, has you, there been you, a shift in acceptance of the empty tomb since like the 70s or even earlier?
1: Yeah. You know, you, you opened. I have been criticized probably by critics more than anything else. I've been criticized for saying 75% of scholars believe in the empty tomb, which I said probably 20 years ago, 18, and I've said it since. That's because I did a survey. That's just my survey. I don't claim it's authoritative or anything, but um, in my surveys, 75%, well, sometimes I'll say, oh, two thirds to three quarters believed in it. But I did a new one for this book. I did a new survey of over 250 critical scholars, 250, and they have to have a terminal degree and a relevant field and have spoken on this subject. And now my figure this time, as you noted, it's moved from 67 to 75. It's gone up now to 80. It was like 80.2%. And I didn't doctor yeah. to get that last percentage point. <laughs> the first time I divided it, it was 80.2%. We're now up to 80% for the empty tomb. We're getting close to making... The scholarly acceptance put it up in the empty tomb, but if, I put up with the minimal facts. But if you're looking about arguments, there's over twenty arguments for the empty tomb according yeah. to critics' standards, which make it as well as well defended. If you don't, if you get rid of that critical point, the second point of my minimal facts, first one is what the facts say. Empty tomb's up there with the other five. That's why I call it. Notice as I go further on of the book, I call it six plus one. I call it six plus one the empty tomb is plus one yeah. because it doesn't pass my critical scholars test, but it more than passes the more important test of evidences. The, the empty evidential tomb is test. As it gets.
0: Now, yeah. probably may, maybe my favorite part of your book, uh, one of the top three is that I remember you referencing years ago, maybe it was in risen Jesus, future hope. He said there's about close to half a dozen arguments for the empty tomb. And I always thought, What are these arguments? Where are they? I'm not aware of them. And I get to the chapter here and I was like, yes, you laid out 21 of these arguments. Now, we're not going to walk through all 21 of them. People are going to have to go through your book. That would be an entire talk just within itself. But I'm curious what you think. Two part question. We'll start with the first one. What do you think is maybe the two or a couple best arguments for the empty tomb. And then I've got a follow-up question about some of the lesser known ones that that you now reference.
1: Okay. Now in the in the material on the empty tomb in this in the big book because I've done this and I've got 22 other books on the resurrection, but what I'm saying is oh, people then people go, "Oh, and you put all 22 of them together to get this big one." Actually, there's no new material. I mean, there's no old material in this book. Um, a very small amount where I took some paragraphs here and there, but this is all new material in the big book. But in my earlier works, I do give—I could tell you who the guys are. But somebody will give eight ar- arguments for the empty tomb. Somebody else gives twelve, mm. and the list keeps going. And and I've got twenty in there, arguments for the empty tomb. But I differentiate. The first six to eight are the best. The rest of them from eight on are subsidiary arguments. They're helpers, not the original ones.
0: Gotcha. So I
1: think the big, the best arguments for the empty tomb, I don't know how many you want me to give, but I'll give you two right off the bat, and you can push for more if you want. That's great. The two arguments right off the bat, the one critics think is number one, and man, this is like unanimous, <laughs> that women hmm. were the ones yeah. that went to the earliest hmm. tomb. Okay, time out, our earlier question. If the women went to the tomb, what didn't they do? They didn't take shovels and go over in the dirt and bring up, the, dig up the rectangular grave. So if you think the women went to the tomb, we're we're already back on. We're you know we're we're past the burial. So the women go to the tomb, and all the sources say the women uh, did this. All four gospels. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Jews aren't the only one that put women down, as as. Different authors have said um, it was the major view around the entire Mediterranean. Women were second-class citizens. Guys were the boss. So if you're back again, you're these four gospel writers. You're not writing in four bedrooms in the same house. You're, I mean, like historically, Mark's from Rome, John's from Ephesus. These are long distances Mm -hmm. away. Why do they all tell the women? Huh, maybe it happened that way. And if the women are the first ones to the tomb and they find the tomb empty, that is by far the most critical argument. That they use it women, which is horrible, because, again, criteria, it's embarrassment. Don't, okay, I want all the critics, I want all you Romans to believe me. The tomb was empty because the women found it. They start walking away from you at that point. If you can put your best foot forward, here's what I would say. The men went to the tomb. And I'm not lying, because of both Luke and John, men go to the empty tomb after they hear the women's reports. But I could start mm-hmm. with the men if I wanted to be respectable. They don't care about respectable. They want to be factual. So the first one is that the women went to the tomb and saw Jesus Great. in a group. Second reason is what Mike Lacona and I, in our co-author book, Case for the Resurrection, we call it the Jerusalem factor. Mm. If Jesus was buried in in um, Constantinople, you know, somewhere in Egypt. If Jesus died somewhere else and the preaching starts in Jerusalem, like what at early chapters in Acts say, and the creeds in Jerusalem, um, nobody would go to Egypt, Alexandria, to check this thing out. Nobody would go to Constantinople. But these guys have the guts to preach the message when the tomb is minutes away if peter goes he's raised not like david david's body decayed acts two jesus david's body decayed jesus did not decay his body did not decay. what happened because he was gone he appeared oh yeah well i just made a trip to your tomb and that tomb is is full buddy okay now critics like to say this what if a critic went to the tomb and they found a body there but the body the face was rubbed off it's it's decomposed and they don't know who it is then the disciples would be wrong because they didn't just say jesus walked out of the tomb they said nobody was in the, the tomb. tomb was empty <clears throat> if you find a body in the tomb you've disproven it so you could go there as much as you want the stones you can walk in you can take a half a day you can take a afternoon walk he's not there Jerusalem is the last place they can preach if the tomb's not empty. The last place. So I think the fact that they chose this, man, Peter, go to Alexandria and preach. I can't check it out. But if you're going to preach with with the body right there, that's silly unless the tomb is
0: empty. That was an interesting response because uh, oftentimes critics will push back and say, well, even if the body was there, it wouldn't be recognizable after, say, 50 days, a couple months, roughly. But your yep. point, if I'm understanding you correctly, is saying it's not like they found somebody and couldn't recognize it. You're saying there was no body at all recognizable or not. That's what the apostles found.
1: Yes, I, that's two. there's two problems. That's one. If there's any body, you lose. Here's the second one. Michael Cohen and I have each talked to medical doctors who medical examiners who examine bodies that are taken out of rivers and people who are dead in the woods for a long time before they're found and everything. And we both asked medical examiners without even knowing what we were asking. They didn't know. We said, could you recognize a body after a week, two weeks, a month? And what if you, you know, and and how far can you go? They said, There's two answers. They said, yeah, you can still recognize the body. But here's the second point. Let's say the face is kind of wiped off a little bit. How about this? We found a body in the tomb and there's nail holes in the wrists and nail holes in the feet. I think we got you guys. No body in the tomb and you'd still be able to tell by the nail holes it was probably Jesus. They had nothing like that. And why did thousands of people come to the Lord, according to Acts, on the first two sermons, 5,000 people come to the Lord, if they can walk to the tomb and see Peter's a liar? Because, you know, Peter's one of the men who, were told, went to the empty tomb after the women were there. Hmm. And they walked away scratching their head and were told that John believed, but Peter still didn't know what to think. Um, That's interesting. The disciples didn't believe because they
0: found the tomb empty. Hmm. They believed they saw him appearing. That's always the key. So, women discovering the empty tomb. Even Dale Allison, his recent book on the resurrection, says this is a good argument, uh, and he obviously yeah. takes a very skeptical approach to this. Uh, preaching in Jerusalem, others will cite things like multiple attestation of the empty tomb, uh, the citing of Paul Absolutely. in First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, I, would some make, will I would say
1: multiple, I would make multiple attestation number three
0: number three you would okay okay
1: and now we got three and go ahead you were talking about
0: Paul now well I was mentioning a couple of the other kind of common arguments that are made such as the body being stolen presumes that the tomb is empty are there any from kind of the lower like 15 that don't get a lot of press that you think is a good argument for the empty tomb that apologists should make more commonly or do you think the common ones that are made typically are the stronger ones Okay,
1: we said women, Jerusalem, and multiple attestation. This one could be the best one, and it's one of the top six or eight, depending on how you count them. Tom Wright's argument that is also present in Gundry, Robert Gundry's book, Soma, also in Mike Lacona's big dissertation, and also in if you've ever read John Cook, he's got two 500-page, one on crucifixion, hundreds of pages long, published by a German publisher. And John Cook, who's really critical, probably cr- more critical as far as what he accepts than any of us, he starts out the beginning, he tells you on page one, I want you to know my conclusion up close. He said, I'm going to argue that the preaching that Paul did about the resurrection body is significantly the same as what the Gospels preached about resurrection body. Okay. And here's, yeah. what, here's what Cook, hmm. Country, Lacona and especially mm. Tom Wright, 550 pages. Here's mm. what they all have in common: they use words "gnosticus" and "egero," the Greek words for, for "raised." And those words always and only. Now Tom's a little strict sometimes. I mean, he says there's no exceptions. Now people have found one or two, okay. but in all of history, if you're in if you're in Greece and you believe there are ghosts, good for you. You believe somebody came back as a wispy spirit good for you. But you don't use the words agnosticis and aggeru. Those are Greek words. You could use them. You don't. Why not? Because agnosticis and ageru mean bodily. In mm. fact, the word agnosticis means to get up again. You know, years ago, I was preaching in, in Stockholm, and the the preacher was preaching in um Swedish, and my interpreter was right next to me. And he got up for Easter Sunday. I was a speaker, but he gave a little introduction, and he said, upstandelsa, Easter morning, and everybody goes real, kind of like dad, upstandelsa, no, upstandelsa, he says it three times, upstandelsa, I asked my, I asked my translator, what does that mean, the the Swedish word means to stand up again, and that is what anastasis mm. means, it mm. means to stand up, so greeks and egyptians don't use anastasis and ageru. it always means bodily so if all i know is that anastasis and agarro mean bodily when they use that word over and over and over again it can only mean one thing bodily
0: that's that's a, what, that's a really uh, I, interesting argument because a common objection has been in first corinthians 15 paul means a spiritual body taken as immaterial but if N.T. Wright and Lacona are right, and I think they are, spiritual yeah. is orientation, not composition. And if that lines up with the Gospels, you have an early support and belief in the same kind of bodily transformation. That makes sense to include that in the empty tomb.
1: All right. By the way, that's a field. That's an area where the field has really changed. We mentioned one from Bolton okay. to a wispy resurrection to a bodily resurrection. Here's another one. At present... The majority, the majority New Testament view, all the way from evangelical scholars with PhDs in New Testament or a relevant field, all the way to atheist New Testament scholars or Jewish non-Christian scholars with PhDs in a relevant field. And the majority view today by far is that if anybody saw anything, Let's put it this way. Let's not talk about what they saw or didn't see. What they meant when they said Jesus appeared is bodily. Bart Ehrman believes that Paul's view was of bodily appearances. That's an old argument that in 1 Corinthians 15, Hmm. it's the wispy Jesus on the way to Acts. And by the way, when critics use that in debates with me, they'll go, oh, pardon moi. Uh, Paul uh, says he saw, okay, first baloney. You're citing Acts nine twenty two and twenty six. You're doing what you tell me not to do. You're citing a secondary source. Dom Crossan says this. You're citing a secondary source. Huh. Let's cite Paul. Well, Paul says spiritual body. Yeah, I know. I think you missed the word soma, which is the second word. Spiritual body. Paul teaches body, and Erman says bodily resurrection is Paul's view. And if Paul teaches body, what about the Gospels? It's amazing. I, it love is. It. That, I love that, it. That argument alone could be the best one. Mm. You could like that one more than the women, more than multiple attestation, more than Jerusalem. And I wouldn't argue because it's the okay. word they use over and over again. And only the Jews, only the Jewish view is that. Greeks didn't use that for their heroes.
0: They mm. use wispy
1: ghost and spirit. They use pneuma. Oh, here's a good one for you Philippians 3 21. He will raise our vile soma. Body to be like unto his glorious what? Numa? Oh, this could be dangerous. No, he will raise our vile soma to be like unto his glorious soma. There's a narcissist. You don't make a move like that. How easily could Paul have said, "He will mm. change our vile soma to be like his glorious Numa, his beautiful Numa, like I saw on the way to Jerusalem." No, he goes body. Mm. Philippians three, another one is Romans 8, 11. He will transform our bodies to bodies. be like unto His soma. Mm. There's a bunch of verses like that, but Philippians three twenty one is a great one because Paul could easily have said "glorious numa." He doesn't.
0: So we've walked through the six minimal facts, a couple of the additional yep. facts, the burial yep. and the empty tomb.
1: Those we'll also other about
0: the center, and... center
1: of faith, which is one of them.
0: Good. So three of the other facts folks can go to the book and read in some depth. I want to ask you two kind of big objections that I've seen come up in these conversations. and I was really grateful that you had an extensive response to this in your book. So obviously don't have to walk through all of the points, but okay. two towards the end of the evidence, maybe just give us one or two reasons why you don't find this compelling is that sometimes critics will claim that there has been legendary development in the Gospels from Mark, To John so we allegedly see this or we see it in development in number in terms of appearances of Jesus the angels at the tomb what are your thoughts on the legendary development objection all right let me give you two you want two? all right
1: you want us to think if you're the critic you want us to think there's a whole lot of difference let's take a look at the difference Matthew and Mark there's one angel at the tomb. Luke and John, what are there, 20? No, there's two. Hmm. And of the old saying, if there's two, there's one. So there could have been two with Mark. There could have been 10. And Mark chooses to talk about one of the 10. Matthew talks about one, the other. The difference is between one and two. That's how much change there is. Women, okay? There's a Mary in all four accounts. But in John, it says Mary and others. We don't know. Okay. Luke doesn't even name the women until you get away from the tomb and they get back to the disciples and they tell you the names. So he's not trying to die for this. But Mary's in all four accounts. We have another Mary in three of the four accounts. And only two women are only in uh, Mark and Luke. Um so Salome and Joanna, they're the only two. Is that a whole lot of liberality? between For 40 years, you went for one angel, two angels, and golly, you got two more women? Woo! This is just mythology abound. No, it's nothing like that. But here's the better argument. I gave it earlier when the Muslim scholar said, I always flip to the discrepancies in the Gospels. I will give those responses, and then I'll say, let me give you a more direct response. I don't give a rip. <laughs> That's not my view, but we're doing an argument here, not my view. I teach a li- I always say that. I teach at liberty. You know what my view is. But if you want to say there's there's problems there, I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to debate that. I'm here tonight to talk about the appearances. And what critics say is, oh, yeah, there's some development there. What about the appearances? Well, yeah, they happened. Then well, what's wrong with your differences objection? It amounts to nothing. In other words, there are a lot of critics who believe the Gospels are full of errors, and they affirm the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Hmm. That really blows it away right there. That that, that that objection, and by the way, they usually get them in the burial and resurrection accounts. That's where they come from, most of the conflicts. But it's the most common objection that critics have raised since English deism prior to uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher in 1799, the birth of Christian liberalism, the biggest objection up until the present from about 18, from about 1725 up to the present is discrepancies. Number okay? one. Yeah. Now, what does discrepancy oh. show? Well, you idiots believe in inerrancy. Okay. What if we don't assume that we play your game? Oh, well, then you get a resurrection. Thank you. That's all I'm talking about. Hmm. And if you're going to get the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus from just the data, here's how the worst the argument could go for me. You've shown a couple of discrepancies, women and angels. There's almost no difference there. Women and angels. And I've shown the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'll take my view over your view. Thank you. Heaven results from mine. What do you get from yours? By the way, Sean, in a recent survey... I do argue from NDEs to the resurrection, as as Dale Allison notes in the uh, the re- recommendation. If NDEs prove life after death, and I you can't use the word proof, but use the proof pr- word sure. proof like probability. If there is an afterlife, why should critics argue about the resurrection? If you've already opened the door to afterlife, then listen mm. to me when I talk about resurrection. All right, mm. so I already have an end to res- resurrection, but here's another one. In a recent survey of atheists and agnostics only, 32% of them said they believe in an afterlife. 32%. Why? It doesn't follow from your view. Why do you? Well, maybe it's because I like it, which means you're not very logical. Number two, maybe you find good evidence? Good. I'll agree with you. Oh, maybe you hmm. read an article on it is Cool. Maybe you read something on the resurrection. That's how I got to know um, Jordan Peterson. Oh. He found a three-page article I did on minimal facts argument. He tweeted it or retweeted it or something. And we got to be friends because he cited my argument. He goes, I got to think about this. And I don't think he means my argument. I think he means the topic. He said, this could be the most important subject I've ever entertained. But it was a minimal facts he brought out because that spoke to him. He thought there were errors. In the, he wasn't a, wasn't a believer in God. But he said if you're gonna use these facts that everybody else gives you, I, I better pay attention to this. Hmm. So my bottom line is let me table the objections for now. I'll handle that somewhere else with by the way. My my um my research assistant, Ben Shaw, who's finished his PhD, he's got a book coming out with Intervarsity Academic 13 Arguments for Reliability in the New Testament. Just to show you that minimal facts people can wow. do the other argument. Well, look at this. I've got okay, I've got six hundred pages at least in my manuscript. Hmm. Six hundred pages on the twelve facts. Six minimal, six others. Six hundred pages. But I have two hundred pages on the resurrection chapters in the gospels in Acts one through eleven one one through eleven. So I do use the reliability argument. Here's another one. Michael Coney uses minimal facts. Mike's doing a second book on reliability right now.
0: Yeah, he ben, is, that's kid, right.
1: Ben likes the Minimal Facts. He's got a book coming out with – it's a myth that we think it's the only way to argue. I have 200 pages on reliability. Mike's got his second book on reliability. Ben's got his first one coming out. We're the main guys that do uh, Minimal Facts.
0: Well, I noticed that you brought that in. And you've done it in the past. You had that chapter in the book, Why I Believe, that's probably a book 15, 20 years ago that Geisler compiled. I remember you've done this in the past. It was good to see that brought in and explained here. We don't have to go into that. That's no, another conversation. There's no way I'll no yeah. deny reliability of the argument. Of course. Of course. No, and I also love that you have the near-death experiences section at the end. Maybe we'll have you back sometime to talk about that. I've covered that a number of times here. And in my course in the resurrection, I talk about that because you open up the door to the afterlife, to there being more than the material world, doesn't get you to resurrection but it's a part of a larger case I love that you include that let me raise one more objection to you that you deal with in the end of your book this is one of the more common ones that I hear and it's that Jesus was mistaken on the imminent coming of his kingdom so in Mark 13 32 for example Jesus seems to strongly imply that the present generation would see his return now, you deal with this all the way in almost page 900 in your book towards the end. But tell us your thoughts on that. Why don't you find that a compelling objection?
1: First of all, years ago when I was going through my doubt, I stopped everything for two weeks, went to the mm. library, pulled out 100 books, and studied that. And that one at 1332 is not a very good objection because in the same text, same context, Jesus says, by the way, I don't know when I'm returning. 1332 mm-hmm. is the one he says, that one knows no man, nor the angels, nor the sun. But wait a minute, you said it's this generation only. Ah, I can pull Gingrich down from my shelf, the Greek commentator, Arton Gingrich, the best known Greek, uh, mm-hmm. Greek lexicon. You look it up on the shorter lexicon by uh, Gingrich and you look up Ganea. The word for generation, the first gener, the first definition, the only definition, race. This race will not pass. Well, what was Jesus' mm. point? Well, the Philistines are gone. Most of the other tribes are gone. The Assyrians are gone. The Syrians, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians—they're all gone. But Jews are still here. That's a meaningful point. There's a bunch of other ones too. I, I have an article. where well, you, you already relate, uh, re- re- related. Uh, some of the arguments but i think mark mark 13 i think is a really bad argument because here jesus says in the context i guess you didn't hear me i said i don't know when i'm returning but mm-hmm. you said in this generation um uh, the word can also mean race it could mean people it can- it, it's, it usually means generation, but it doesn't have to. Here's another mm-hmm. argument. This is the better talk You know, I like these other arguments, too, where I can say I really don't care. Now, I'm not going to say that about this one because Jesus would be mistaken. But okay. here's here's what I would say. Jesus' number one lecture point, according to almost everybody in the New Testament, it's not part of my minimal fact because it's not during the, well, it does happen in resurrection, but His number one teaching is the kingdom of God and how to get there. In Mark, he came out preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's his number one teaching. And interestingly enough, after he rises from the dead in Acts 1, he's still talking about the kingdom. And when Paul goes Mm -hmm. on the way to Damascus, he's still talking about the kingdom. It's his number one teaching. All right, here's my argument. If his number one teaching was the kingdom, and he specifically says, I don't know when I'm returning, if perchance he guessed and was wrong, it's not his big point. His main point is the kingdom his coming. The resurrection says it's coming. And if he were a false prophet by any definition, why did God raise him from the dead? I think that's a good comeback is, if he was wrong about the time of his coming, he's a pretty bad false prophet. Number one, he's off his subject. The subject is the kingdom, not the timing of the kingdom. Just like we know the second coming, but we know the timing of the second coming. Jesus said, I don't know the timing. But the second one is, if he were a heretic, why did God raise him and only him in the history of religion? We have no other evidence that a founder of a major world religion was raised from the dead, even by his Orthodox followers. None. So I've got to to take a stand for the argument that God raised him because his teaching was true. And what was his teaching? If you want to get to the kingdom, believe in me, follow me. And what you do with me, This even Boltman says this. If you want to bold, boil down Jesus' argument, it's like this. What do you do with me? Because what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. That's that's mm. what Jesus preached, and eternity is the kingdom. Yeah, but he's wrong about the coming. Well, if it's that bad, first of all, I don't think he was. I, I give all kinds of those arguments, Like, and I've done it elsewhere. But the main thing is he couldn't have been a heretic because his father raised him. That would be pretty bad. I mean, the, the spike
0: goes on the father then. Gary, in many ways, we just kind of hit the surface, scratch the surface on your book. I have many more questions for you, but let me ask you kind of a few, just to somewhat wrap up personal questions about this. Sure. You publish with Broadman and Holman Academic Press. I've done some yep. books with B&H, love the folks there. Why publish with a Christian press as opposed to a secular press? <laughs> First of all, I didn't, I, I didn't try any press.
1: I didn't send out a um, synopsis. I didn't send a thing out to any press. But Baker called me. Zondervan talked to me, and the other publishers. And I don't, I don't spite them at all. I know they're not secular, but well, Zondervan has a secular arm, but or the other way around, the secular arm has Zondervan. <laughs> right, but, right. <laughs> but they said to me, and I'm not putting them down at all. They're my friends. Uh, Stan Gundry called me from Zondervan. Good friend for a long time. They said if you if you were to come to us, here's the problem: we're going to want you to raise four hundred thousand dollars before we can even take this project because that's how much it's going to cost us to get this thing off the ground before we wow. earn our first dollar. And to wow. cite Stan Gundry, to, to cite him, and I don't I don't judge him one bit. He said virtually no publisher in this country has that deep of pockets. That was his wow. comment. And please, for you people listening, Stan Gundry's a saint to me. He's a really good friend. I'm not putting him down. He's just giving facts. We're going to that money because we yeah. don't have the money. All right. So B&H called me out of nowhere because the editor of B&H used to be an editor at Zondervan. He was mm. there. Okay. He calls me. And he's got a PhD, by the way, in historical theology. That senior editor at uh, B&H called me and said, Hey. What do I? What's the status of your your four-volume thing right now? I said, I haven't found a hmm. publisher. I haven't really been looking. He goes, why not? I said, well, first of all, I just haven't looked. But secondly, these guys want me to raise $400,000. Lexum was a little lower, but they were still very high. He goes, you come with us, and you don't have to raise a penny. Wow.
0: That no, seals I it. Say
1: that <laughs> it. I won't say that was it, but that did make me look. I didn't feel Fair like enough. going out and raising $400,000.
0: Yeah, I don't. blame and they've you. Got
1: it. they've got ins with the whole denomination. They've got ins. Their books can go over to um, what's Lexum's um, Log- uh, logos and Faith Life. Yeah, yeah. I've got books on logos. You probably do. Yep. Uh, yep. They can take this over on logos. It can still go over there, but they said we're not going to charge you a penny. That's amazing. and now we found okay. out, we found out today that someone sent it to me. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I don't want to misrepresent them. Amazon's list of hot new books in some area of religion, and they have a list of 76. I didn't see it, but yesterday I was told this book, this book was number one. Well, it should be. They didn't. Well, they didn't send it to me when it was number one. The guy sent it to me today, and we'd fallen all the way to number two. <laughs> So well, it's called an Amazon hot new release. Here's the problem, the issue. The book doesn't come out till Monday. It's already the top new release and it's not out. Well, so we're... Uh, I, hope, we're I, hope, I hope, what I'm saying is I hope Robin and Holman, they're going to get their money back pretty quickly. It's already mm. a real hot deal.
0: I hope so too. And I hope folks will pick it up for sure and read it. It's worth the, it's not a cheap book, but it is worth it and some for sure. How come, I think... About that. I was asked uh, yeah. to mention
1: this to you guys sure. by the same gal who tried to send the book to you. Uh, she mentioned it in the email. That book, this big book, sells for $80 plus tax, $79.99, $80 plus taxes on Amazon. If you go to Lifeway, which is the parent company of B&H, for just a few more weeks, they're selling the book for $58 or $59. Oh, great. Book. Great. So you can get it a lot, a lot more cheaply. Uh, there. And I want to make sh- sure everybody understands. I was not dogged Baker or Zondervan one little bit and, and and Stan Gundry in particular, great friend. If it costs $400,000, it costs $400,000. They're right. I don't object. I just said when someone told me, you don't have to raise it. That's why I, oh, I want to get you take-
0: out of out, here because of time. But let me ask you this final question. Yeah, uh, And here's the final question for you you started studying the resurrection like five decades ago what does it mean to you personally to see this massive volume come out and hold it in your hands sean i am so thrilled for this reason
1: one of the guys who wrote a blurb uh for this book um i'll tell you who it was it was uh craig hazen at your Mm. school Craig wrote and he said, I hope I don't misquote him, but he says something like, I should get the book and read it but he said, this is going to be the go-to book on the resurrection for a couple generations, and I'm only talking about volume one. Okay, that's what I'm thinking about it. Other guys said things like that, but if it's the go-to book for a long time to come, I've done my job. Long after I'm gone. Um, you know, I wanted to be out there and be a witness. I wanted to touch people's lives. And here's the most touching thing I could say. Um, I'm remarried, thankfully, got a wonderful, beautiful wife, but the mother of my four children died in 1995 of stomach cancer. In a famous thing that I've published, I sat on the front porch of my house. I imagined this. Well, I did sit on the front porch of my house with a child monitor next to me. Well, she was upstairs and she was sleeping from the drugs and she eventually died. Um, and I was I make believe I'm asking God, I actually did ask him this, but make believe I'm saying to God, Debbie's only forty three years old. Why is she mm. dying? And her only wish is to see her grandkids, and she's not going to see a single one. What's going on here? And I picture God saying to me, here's what God would say in my mind. I picture God saying to me, Gary, I know you're hurting, but what kind of a world is this? And I said, Lord, I don't know. Deb's up there in bed dying. Why are you asking me what kind of world is it? Gary, please, what kind of a world is this? Well, I don't know. Given my background, it's a world where Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead. That's the main thing mm-hmm. I can say. And God said, good start. So if you know Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, what does that tell you about Debbie? Um, She's probably going to go to be with Jesus. Okay, pretty good. What's going to happen when you die? I hope I'm going to go there and be with Debbie. And he said to me, and then God says to me, my son, one day you will be with her and you will walk hand in hand and down the streets of heaven. I wasn't remarried at that time, but in fact, she wasn't even dead. But he said, you'll walk hand, hand in hand with her down the streets of heaven. But Lord, yes, I know, Gary, there's some pain and suffering here. I can't explain that to you right now, but there is an answer. If there's a death and resurrection, trust me that there's an answer to a lesser problem, which is the problem of pain Mm. and suffering. The resurrection to me is the ultimate answer to the question, why this and when will it be rectified? And if it's
0: eternal life and it's rectified there, it makes all the difference in the universe. I love it. Amen. Well, I want everybody watching this, believe it or not, pick up volume chapter one uh read it it'll take you a week to read it it took me a long time and i'm familiar with these arguments gary i can't wait for volume two volume three is gonna be helpful but really in particular volume four what this means and how to apply it is powerful i have been praying for you and just your health to be able to finish and work through this project just what you've been through in your life is such a gift to the kingdom at Biola, we appreciate your friendship. We appreciate all that you're doing, and we're going to continue to partner for a long time. In due time, when I fully update my course, I'm going to be working your book into it for sure and making it one of the texts that we use. Uh, it was gratifying to see you cite, cite my work a couple times. I told my wife, I was like, wow, it's, it's valuable. It was really awesome and just so encouraging that that was a piece I'm a of chapter it. But- the am chapter on transformation. You're the man well i don't know about that but that was just yeah i was encouraging uh i know you got to run but folks before you leave make sure you hit subscribe as well we got other shows coming up we cover the resurrection regularly we'll have gary back to continue to talk about this maybe probe into near-death experiences and if you thought about studying the resurrection, I would love to have you in class do a full semester class called In Defense of the Resurrection, where we look at these issues in even more depth. Gary, you've got family time coming up, so gotta let you know. But appreciate your work. Appreciate you, my friend. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Sean.